up. Lord, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for these guys. Uh, Lord, as we, um, as we look into your word and look into the history of the church, uh, let us uh, glean some principles and insights uh, today um, about what, um, uh, what you would have us see, uh, God, and, uh, and hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, just back on uh, October the 31st, 1517, uh, we celebrated the 500th anniversary, uh, not of Halloween, uh, but uh, of uh, the Reformation. And uh, that's the Reformation where Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis uh, on the church doors, the castle church doors there in Wittenberg. It's spelled Wittenberg with a W, but it's pronounced it kind of in a Germanish way um, with a V. Uh, those doors and those, 90, those words of the 95 Theses probably became the most uh, important doors uh, in all of history. Uh, those original doors were wooden doors. They are no longer there if you go to Wittenberg, but you can go to the same church, the castle church there in Wittenberg. Uh, you can see the see doors that are there. They're bronze, and they have those 95 theses etched in them. So you can actually go, go read them, assuming you can read Latin, uh, because uh, when Martin Luther started the Reformation and nailed his 95 theses up on the door uh, church doors there in Wittenberg, uh, he did not um, write them in such a way that the common people could walk around and read them. Not many of the common commoners um, uh, read Latin in the day. It was primarily a church language. It was a high-class language. Uh, today it's a dead language. Uh, but he wrote them in Latin because what he wanted to do is he wanted to start a dialogue uh, with the church and with the people. And Martin Luther had uh, been born, born to uh, kind of a ranching, farming family who had, who had done well um, when he was growing up, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and he started off setting off uh, uh, to be a lawyer. Uh, one day, I believe it was in the town of Eifert, uh, he was caught in a, uh, in a thunderstorm. And he had been struggling with, you know, he really didn't want to be a lawyer, but he knew that's what he was supposed to do. He was going to school. Uh, and he thought, really thought God was trying to kill him. He thought God was trying to kill him. If you read the story, uh, he was basically struck by the lightning. And it was, he was sitting there, he cried out to St. Anne, now this is pre, pre-Reformation Martin, by the way, uh, to St. Anne, which was the uh, patron saint uh, of his family and his people, and he said, uh, you know, if you, will, uh, if you will save me, uh, I will dedicate my life to the service of God. And so he was saved. Uh, sure enough, he turned right around and in classic German fashion through a big beer bust and a beer party, uh, gave all of his books to his, uh, to his friends uh, and said, uh, I am going uh, uh, to the church. I am going to become a monk. He became an Augustinian monk. And uh, he was a very devoted Augustinian monk. He, uh, uh, he studied and read. And in those days, boy, to be a monk meant you were part of uh, you know, constant praying, constant fasting. They felt like, and the Augustinian monks uh, felt like, you know, part of what you need to do if you're really going to earn God's favor is you need to suffer. And so it was not uncommon uh, for them, even in the cold winters uh, there in Germany, uh, for him to sleep on a rock floor uh, with nothing but his, uh, his monkery robe on. And, uh, I mean, he was the most dedicated Augustinian monk. As a matter of fact, uh, part of what changed his life is uh, he was trying to be so committed 
that the uh, the rector there, the uh, the chief of the Augustinian monk there, looked at him and said, "Man, he's going to kill himself. He's so into this stuff. He he's so dedicated. He's going to kill himself." And what he was doing is he was grappling with the idea that uh, if I am basically having to earn my salvation and earn my forgiveness, he goes. I've got a lot in my heart that I struggle with. I've got a lot, you know, a lot in my life. And if I am, and he would study the righteousness of God and he would say, here's God's righteousness and here's my righteousness. Man, if I'm going to somehow earn God's favor, I've got to get serious about this. And so he was all in. And finally, the rector there at the Augustinian monk said, you know, I'm I'm just going to send him to Rome. Let him make a pilgrimage to Rome. And um, so what he did is he made a pilgrimage to Rome. And then when he saw what was going on in Rome, he got disgusted. He said, you know, here all of the people that I minister to and preach to and teach to, all these farmers and paupers um, have nothing. And he went to Rome and saw all the elaborate palaces and, uh, you know, and the homes and the the quarters of the Pope, and they were living. They were living the high life. Is basically what he did. And he was under Pope Leo, who was probably the most, uh, probably one of the most pagan popes there ever was. If you ever, if you want to read a neat, neat book uh, out there, even a synopsis of a book, there is a synopsis of a book called Bad Popes. All right, and uh, they they were they would have a good one every once in a while, but they'd have a bad one. The the one at the time was pretty bad. I mean, he he felt like, I mean, you, you can read quotes where he told his people and uh, he said, you know, God has given us the papacy, let's enjoy it. I mean, that was his words. Those were his words. And so when Martin Luther um, went to Rome and he was seeing uh, uh, St. Peter's Cathedral being built and then he, then he at the same time, he was hearing what these indulgence preachers would do. These indulgence preachers, how many of you know what an indulgence is? Um, these preachers would come out from Rome into these small towns like Martin Luther, and they would sell indulgences that if you gave some money to go build the, uh, the Holy Roman Church in Rome, every clink that you gave would release a soul from purgatory. That was, the, they actually had a, it was called a gink and clink or something like that. It was a German play on words that if you put some money in the uh, uh, coffers of the church, your uncle so-and-so who's been stuck in purgatory burning off his, uh, uh, his last few sins would be released into heaven. And that's, so they started selling, they called them selling indulgences. And uh, man, Martin Luther began to walk around and see, here are the people that I minister to. And they're just living it up in Rome. And he, he really came back from that pilgrimage just distraught, just distraught. And uh, he started kind of kicking back and rebelling and uh, started attacking some of the indulgent preachers that would come through town. Uh, they would preach, and he would preach against them. And uh, in the process of that, he said, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Well, as God would have it in his providence of sovereignty, uh, Martin Luther, when he came back, uh, began to teach and preach through books like the Hebrew, Hebrews and uh, Romans and Galatians. And uh, he ran across that passage in that verse that said, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Well, he had been doing everything he could as an Augustinian monk to create his own righteousness. And then he said, the righteous shall live by faith. He goes, I'm not living by faith at all. 
I'm living by works and my works in particular. And so he just had one of these literally come to Jesus meetings. And if you look in Martin Luther's writings, he actually said when he came to that place of brokenness because he was torn between what he thought were two righteousness, one that was preached and taught by the Catholic church of his day, the, the, the church, and the one that he preached, the righteousness that is earned by works and indulgences and doing good work. And then he goes in a righteousness that was found in Scripture in Galatians and, um, you know, and, and, Rome, and Romans and even in the Psalms. He says, man, that's, those are two different types of righteousness. One comes by faith, one comes by works. And so he actually basically said, I'm going to the faith side because if I'm an honest evaluator of God's righteousness compared to the best of my righteousness, my righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And so that's really what started. So then he began to say, I want to start a dialogue. I want to start a dialogue within the church about these things that I see as problematic. And as he's studying God's Word and teaching God's Word and preaching God's Word, uh, he's actually at this point beginning to read God's Word. And uh, in, in those days, uh, a man named Erasmus had come along, and Erasmus had, uh, was, a, was, a, was a biblical scholar, but he began to uh, uh, write uh, and kind of a parallel Bible. Anybody see a parallel Bible uh, where you kind of have, you look in a version and you got the New American Standard next to the NIV, next to the King James Version, and you look at those? Well, he basically did a parallel Bible. He put the Greek, original Greek New Testament, right next to the Latin. The Latin was what they preached out of that day. And so you, you would have all these people that would come into church. Imagine coming to church, and, and, and I do my mass if I'm, the, if, I'm, if I'm the priest in Latin, and none of y'all speak Latin. But then I walk out of there and say, y'all be warm, be filled. And by the way, in German, I would say, if you put a boatload of money in the offering plate down there, uh, the moment your coin hits the bottom of the, of the pot, Uncle Billy Bob will be released from purgatory. So remember on your way out, clink and jink, okay? And so he began to feel, this, this is wrong. This is wrong. And so he began to read that, uh, uh, in, in, as you looked at the Greek and you looked at the Latin, he realized those words penitence in, in, in Jesus' opening words of his first sermon where Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He looked at the Latin and the Latin trans, translation was do penance. That's workspace. You hear the do penance. Well, that made it easy to preach. Right? Do penance. What do you, how can you do penance? You can give your money. You can do this. You can be faithful in church. You can, do, you can make a pilgrimage yourself uh, to Rome if you want to. All of these things. you got to pray. you got to fast. You gotta, so Martin Luther's been do penance, do penance, do penance, do penance. Then he actually looks at the Greek and says, whoa. It doesn't say do penance. It says repent. In other words, turn from my own righteousness towards God's righteousness. Turn from doing my own thing, which is my bad works, towards having faith in God. And he began to say, that's not right. So Martin Luther sat down in the 95 Thesis where Martin Luther just setting out 95 charges against his Roman Catholic Church. And in those charges, all he wanted was a dialogue. Like I said, he didn't write them for the common people. His beef wasn't with the common people. 
when he looked at the common people, he looked at the people that were trying to do their best based on what they were being told, right? So he, his attack was not on the common people. So when he nailed it, and by the way, the church doors um, uh, there uh, on the castle church and in all of those towns operated as kind of uh, a bulletin board. If you want to, if you want to put it that way, kind of a bulletin board of, uh, you know, here are the community events coming up. All right, here's here's the indulgence preachers that's going to come through, or here's uh, sister so and so's uh, funeral will be on this day. So it was not uncommon. Okay, this was not like this was the only thing that was nailed on the church door, but. Uh, so if you went through the town, you, we've seen those in towns, you know, the old small town or something like that, or even in a church, you get a bulletin board somewhere, and you kind of go there and you look. All right, now we look on our phone. But people would go and look there. Well, most of the commoners were like, that's some Latin gibberish. But the monks who would come up and say, oh, Martin has stepped into it now. The priest uh, had stepped into it. Now, Martin would later say, uh, if there's anybody that ever could have been saved by, and these were actually his words, by their monkery, it was me. He says, I was, I was the monkest of all monks. I, I was monkery to the max. He says, I was totally committed. He says, there wasn't an Augustinian monk, monk that, that competed with me in my desire uh, for gaining God's righteousness through works. So he nailed, nailed those 95 theses on the wall. Well, uh, instead of, uh, uh, instead of um, creating a bait, he, uh, uh, he was responded to by the Pope, says, well, there's a, little, there's a drunk German for you. That, those are exactly the Pope's words, drunk German, ignore him, uh, get him to back down. They went through the diet of worms. That didn't mean they ate worms. Uh, that, was a, that was kind of a disputation where they got in there and they, they argued back and forth, and they told him, recant, or we're going to excommunicate you. And that's where he said those words, you know, I'm, I'm going to stand with God's word. I'm going to stand with faith. I'm going to stand with truth. Here I stand. And he says, I'm not backing off. I'm, and he says, if I die and go to hell, it's going to be with good conscience because Scripture tells me the just shall live by faith. And it's not doing penance that's going to get it done. And so that was his idea. So he nailed those 95 theses on the, on the wall. Now, as the, as the Reformation developed... Um, we, uh, we talk a lot today about five things, uh, five points. We talk a whole lot about five points, but they're the wrong five points, I will tell you. Um, we talk a lot about the five points of Calvinism. How many of you have heard of those? Okay. Uh, those came later, really, in the Reformation. The ones that really matter are five solas. If you're taking notes, uh, write the word S-O-L-A. Uh, sola. That is the Latin word for alone or only. Okay, the Latin word is sola, and so he had five solas basically for the Reformation, and these kind of developed themselves out of the ninety-five thesis. Um, and uh, and if you look in those ninety-five thesis and you and you read them, uh, most of them have to do with um, you know with the Pope. You know, with selling of indulgences, uh, with uh, prayers that were worthless, uh, giving of alms didn't help. Uh, that, you know, if the Pope, and this is where if you read, you, you got to know who the Pope is, that when he starts to talk about the Pope, uh, because they taught that the Pope had the authority to release people from purgatory and forgive sins. And he was saying, if this Pope of all Popes <laughs> has the authority to release sins, release people from purgatory and forgive them of their sins, he ought to do it to everybody because he's the sorriest sinner around. Now, that doesn't endear you to the church, by the way. 
but everybody knew what they were talking about because this was a sorry pope. And so if, if you look at those 95 theses, really you can break it down to five solas. And a sola is the Latin word for alone and only. So let me give you those five, and I, I want to tell you the background and the history of them. Here's number one. Write this down. Sola Scriptura. And in the Latin, it would be transliterated S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-A. But Scripture alone, if you want to put the word alone, that's really what it means. Number one was Scripture alone. The gospel is revealed through Scriptures alone. Now, again, you're going to hear this common theme come up as I walk through these five. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, uh, 16 and 17. We'll be there in a second. But... What uh, one of the major planks of the Reformation uh, was that a the, uh, that Scripture was the only source of spiritual authority. Um, you know, how can we know God and His spiritual uh, truth? Uh, it, it's not through the Pope. It's uh, not through the Church. It's not through the Church councils. It's not through personal experiences. It's not through your feelings. Okay, he says, if you want to know God. It's found in one place, sola scriptura. It's in God's Word alone. Uh, they, they brought back the Bible. Now, part of what made the Reformation, hey, hopefully you'll know this word, uh, this, this person, uh, and what, what his significance was. Um, anybody know, heard the word Gutenberg? Okay, somebody, somebody tell me what it was. Okay, Gutenberg Press. Uh, like, like I told you, remember Martin Luther wrote his original 95 thesis in what language? Language. Okay, somebody went and translated those, that, that, those 95 thesis into German, the common German of the day, and guess who printed them and gave them out? There you go. That's how come the Reformation just tore off like wildfire. And so uh, notice what it says. Um, man, here's a couple key scriptures. Uh, reformers brought us back to the Bible alone. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good word. All Scripture, Scripture alone, not the Pope, not the church, uh, not some other teaching, not church tradition, Scripture alone. And now what he will say, and we'll, we'll go back over that, that theme kind of runs through all five of these. But here, here he, had, he had clear practices of the church that just were in direct contrast to what Scripture taught. And so instead of conforming church practice to what Scripture's taught, they just elevated practice and church together. Does that make sense? They just said, well, yes, it's Scripture plus. That's why the word sola is alone. It was very much Scripture plus. Scripture plus. The Bible plus what the church does, that's tradition, and what the church says, that's teaching. Does that make sense? And so that's why we always want to encourage you, man. When I teach, open your Bible. Uh, see if what I'm saying is true. See if what I'm saying uh, can be tested by God's Word. And if I bench you off down a path, 
uh, that's not right. You, you come to me with, with your scripture, with, with God's word. Uh, don't, don't come to me with your feelings. Don't come to me with, you know, with, with, well, you know, when I grew up, this is how the church I grew up in did it. And, you know, those kind of things. And uh, uh, don't come to me with, with that. If, you, if you've got a problem, come to me with scripture. And say, say, Pastor, you said Jesus Christ was this, but this scripture seems to say that. See, then you have an argument. Then you have an argument. So uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, uh, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy or scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoken from God. And so what he's saying is, man, we're going back to God's Word. And the reason why that was a key for him is it says, you know, we have all of these popes and every, every he says, every, every pope. And by the way, not all popes were bad, by the way. Just want you, and the church wasn't, wasn't all bad. Um, the, uh, uh, what would happen is a new pope would come in, and if he was one of the bad popes, uh, he would start changing some things. And people, would, and there would there would always be, always be a remnant there that would say, "Yeah, that doesn't jive with Scripture." And he goes, "Hey, I'm the Pope. You've got to you, you've got to listen to what I say." And he would speak ex cathedra. Second yeah. uh, Peter chapter one verse twenty and twenty one. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty and twenty one. That Scripture was inspired by God. Now uh, I'll, I'll go all the way back uh, back to the current Pope of his day. If you want to know this, uh, the papacy was for purchase in those days. I will tell you, the papacy was for purchase in those days. Uh, not all the priests were for, for purchase, but the papacy was. The, uh, the pope at the time um, uh, that, uh, that Martin Luther was there, uh, the pope at the time uh, had become, through, a, through his father's gift to the church, a priest at eight years old. So imagine the kind of power at eight years old, all of a sudden you're rolling through uh, as the priest. So you can imagine that's what, and that's what his father wanted. And so his father was a wealthy man. He wanted him to be the pope. And he just kept buying his way up, man. And they, they would go into their smoke-filled room getting ready to vote. Guess what? If there was enough gold coins passed around, guess who the next pope is or next who the next cardinal is? So pretty rapidly he moved up, uh, he moved up the ranks. Uh, in Luther's day, um, uh, here, here Here's another one, uh, John 17, 17. Uh, Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. And so Martin Luther, in studying and preaching and teaching, came to the conclusion that, you know what? God's word alone should be authority for, for the practice of the church. Does that make sense? Sola Scriptura. Here's number two. Write this down. Sola Christus. Sola Christus. That means the gospel is centered around Christ alone. Christ alone. Really driving home that point. Just like he said, uh, Scripture is not equal with personal experience or church tradition. That would be Sola Scriptura. Um, Sola Christus. That means Christ alone. The gospel and everything about the gospel is centered on Christ. It's, it doesn't have a bunch of, uh, you know, the... the the gospel is not like a Christmas tree that you hang a bunch of ornaments and lights on. 
And everybody who comes along, this year we get to hang, somebody says, you know, I want to move to all the white bulbs and the white lights. And then the next year we want to do all the colored lights and the colored, colored bulbs. He says, not, not that at all. He says, it's about Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's the one that bought and paid for my salvation. Uh, why is that? Because He's holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Uh, but just as He who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now, when, when Martin Luther came to that, and, and he started looking at the holiness of God and the holiness of man, he goes, You will never be able to marry those two. The, ho- the best holiness a man can come, out, come up isn't in the spiritual stratosphere or universe with God's purity and holiness. Does that make sense? And so, man, when we're called to be holy, he says, there's no way we can be that holy if the way I get holy is by doing penitence. He says, man, it's all about God. It's all about Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, this is, this is the message. We have heard from Him and declared to you, God is light, and in Him, in him there's no darkness. So, you're, man, you're struggling with that. Then he looked at Romans chapter 3. Remember I told you one of the, uh, some of the passages he, he, he preached from that really changed his heart after he'd gone to Rome were Romans and Hebrews and Galatians and even the Psalms. He, he came to Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 8. Now, he studied God's holiness. Now, look at what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 18. It says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who, cannot, who understands there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All together have become work, worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He says their throats are open gates. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Martin Luther started reading that and began to look around at the indulgent preachers of his day. and begun, Their lips and their tongues are just like poisonous vipers. They're coming through these towns and these villages and biting the people and poisoning their minds and their thoughts. And then as you continue to read on, he says, Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin uh, and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace uh, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then jump down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was where Martin Luther came. The standard, if we're going to be with God for all of eternity, is pure and perfect holiness. If that's the standard, the reality of where we are, we're all sinners. There's not one of us that is righteous. Not a pope, not a cardinal, not a priest, not a preacher, not a missionary, not one, not the cobbler, not the shoemaker, not the, not the artist down the road, not the poet, none of that. None of that is absolutely uh, good. None of, nobody's perfect. Uh, look at First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Well, how are we going to reconcile these? Well, there's one mediator between God and man. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the mankind, G- the man, Jesus Christ. So he says, there's one God, remember the holiness, all right? And then there's man, and there's one mediator between God and man. So when Martin Luther looked around and he saw this, said there's one mediator between God and man, 
we we have developed the church, and 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 I will tell you this is this is not just you know the Roman Catholic churches. We look to look back in those. It's any church. We if we aren't careful, we can we can start making our practice the way we do things equal with Scripture. How many of you know that? We can. I mean, we can battle over stuff that don't matter. Well, this is the way, you know, we did church then, or this is where we did church over there, or this, this is God's music here, or this is the kind of God's music there. And, you know, that, that, that is taking tradition of the church and making it equal with, with the gospel. But Martin Luther came to this idea, there is one mediator between God and man. And it's not the church. It's not the pope. It's not Mary. It's not indulgences. It's not any of that. It is Jesus and Him alone. Does that make sense? And so that's what he said. There's one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 5. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He looked at that word through me in the Greek and said, we are telling them how to get there everywhere but through Jesus through the church, through this. And in those days, let me tell you what, it wasn't like these days um, where you could just leave a church. I want you to know, if you left the Catholic church in, in those days, they, they said you were going to hell. If you got crossways with the church and they excommunicated you, which I've thought about with some of y'all, uh, you weren't just not, a, not invited to go back to church. You went to hell. I want, I want you to hear me. I, when, when Martin Luther stepped away from the Catholic Church, the prevailing teacher, teaching of that day was not he was going to go down and join the Lutheran Church. There was no Lutheran Church. okay. But by separating himself from everything he knew, and I want you guys to understand what, what you need to think about Martin Luther, he said, if I am wrong, I am going to hell. For all of eternity. That's how serious it was. It wasn't going from church A to church B. He was going from the church to no church, stepping and trusting Christ alone. Does that make sense? That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. And, and so and what did he do? He Man, he just started pouring himself into God's Word and reading Scripture and go, Okay, Jesus, you said I'm the way, uh, you're, you're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I just got kicked out of the church, so I hope you're telling the truth. <laughs> I mean, that's how he was saying it, and that's why he said, man, upon Scripture, here I stand. And he would say, these are my verses. I am going to my grave with these verses. I'm going to my grave with these verses. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, talking about the one mediator between God and man, one way of salvation and atonement uh, that Jesus... And there is no... Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men can be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 is what I just read. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, remember what 23 is? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, man, we focus on that one. But verse 24 says that a person is justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is only found in Jesus Christ. So if you take the first statement... Nothing is equal with Scripture. Not church tradition, not church practice, not personal feelings. And that's why I do, uh, I do get concerned 
when I look around and I hear um, uh, even today from time to time certain preachers and certain areas where they talk about God has given me a word, you know, today, I, 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 I will tell you there are times that I, I know God in, in certain counseling sessions, God's given me a word for people, for a person that I'm talking to. That, that, but when we start accepting that word as equal with God's word, that's the problem. Does that make sense? Because you guys never know if I just went out and tied one on before I was preaching on Sunday morning, and I just have a, you know I have a little indigestion or hangover. Uh, by the way, by the way, you can know I never tied one on before I preached. Let me clear that. Um, so, what's that? Oh yeah, after we preach, I'm gone. So, uh, uh, but we can't ever let anything do that. All right, we can't ever let it. So, in Christ alone, Christ alone for salvation, Scripture alone for authority. Here's number three: uh, sola gratia. That means grace alone, grace alone. The gospel is believed and received by grace alone, not works. Does that make sense? Not works. Works doesn't have one thing to do with your salvation. It's not 99% faith and 1% works. It's not 99% works and 1% faith. It's not 50-50. It's 100% grace in God, grace of God, 0% works. You add nothing to your salvation, all right? You add nothing to it. Now, you can take away from your witness, but you can't add anything to your salvation. Does that make sense? He says, by grace alone, uh, the gospel is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of, y'all probably know the answer, works so that no one should boast. Hey, listen, if we could get there by salvation, what would happen? Exactly what was happening in the church of that day. Everybody was patting themselves on the back and bragging about all they had done and all they had given. Uh, and and that, was, that became their comp- competition. Romans chapter 11, verse 6, you want to write this verse now. It says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You know what you're addressing there is there are some people who believe they get saved by faith, but they keep their salvation by works, right? They, they, they believe you can lose something you got by faith and grace. You can lose it by works. Well, if you didn't get it by works, how can you lose it by works? The only way you can lose it by works is if you gained it by works. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, man, it's no longer grace if it has anything to do with your works. All right, number four. I'm going to write this down. Sola fide, F-I-D-E. It's faith alone. The gospel is received by faith alone. Salvation comes by grace alone. The gospel is received by faith alone. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3, verse 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says, Not to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. In other words, what he's saying, he, when he's using the analogy there in, John, in, in Romans chapter 4, he's saying, listen, when you work after you are saved, it's not for your salvation, it's because of your salvation. And you, let me tell you what, if you're truly saved, Paul says, there will be confirming works of your salvation. 
You know, if, if, if you, if you walk, walk out or go to VBS or something when you're four years old and you have a little, say a little prayer and the rest of your life you live like hell and never do anything for God and then you pass away and they say, but you know, back in vacation Bible school, back in the 1812s, he was the cutest little, and you should have drawn, seen the camel he drew. And there's never a lick, a work of salvation. That person was never saved. He didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. Okay, that's, there are some people who say, you, you Baptist, you teach that you can get saved, you can live anyway. No, confirming works tell you if the tree's good or not. And so he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but it's just what, what's due. What is due from me to God because of my salvation? That I would serve Him. Does that work for Him? Does that make sense? That I, would, that I would be a good steward of my resources, my love, my relationships, my church, my people, the gospel. That's what's due to God. If this gospel has saved me, how can I not serve the God who saved me through this gospel? That's what he's saying. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man, hey, for you guys that are leaving, we're going to get sola de gratia. That's number five. That means live today for the glory of God. That's the fifth one. Um, and y'all need it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, uh, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even that he, we have believed, there's faith, now you got believed. Uh, by the way, faith and believe are the same word in the Greek. Faith is just a noun version. Believe is the verb. Does that make sense? So when you see faith and believe, I want you to understand that is the same Greek word. Faith is a noun. Have faith or believe in Jesus Christ. One's a noun, one's a verb. Same word. Uh, he says, uh, even we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by our works of the law. What does he say? We're justified by faith, not by works of the law. Justified by faith, justified by faith, faith alone. All right. Then uh, talking about justified by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Here puts it all together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace saves you through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, totally a gift of God. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, where do works come in? Right here in verse 10. Continue to read on. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do. Are good works important in the life of the believer? How many of you think they're important in the life of the believer? This is not a trick question. Everybody raise your hand. Okay. They're important, but not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. Does that make sense? Vitally important. In other words, if someone is a true believer, unless they are like the thief on the cross that has one of those deathbed or death cross conversions, where I don't know if y'all noticed this, but the thief on the cross didn't do a lot of good works after he professed Jesus' name, right? He was saved, went to heaven. He wasn't baptized. He didn't join a church. He didn't teach Sunday school. I mean, he, got, he had nothing. But Jesus said what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. But if you are a believer, 
and there are no confirming works, you're probably not a believer, period. If there's not a desire within your heart. Now, you've heard me talk back in, back in July when I was talking about Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. If you, if you say, but pastor, wouldn't I be over this sin struggle? No, 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 no. As long as we're in the flesh, the flesh is going to war. The flesh is going to battle. What did Paul say, Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What did he say right before that? He goes, what a wretched man am I. He goes, that which I want to do, I often find myself not doing, but that which I, I, I don't want to do, that's what I do. So listen, just because there's a battle in your heart doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean that you're not a believer, but there ought to be some sort of confirming works. God saved you to do the works He has prepared for you beforehand, and we need to do those. Then the final one, number five, sola deo gloria. It's uh, sola deo, deo, for God's glory alone. That the, that the essence of the Christian life ought to be lived for the glory of God, totally and completely uh, for the glory of God. Everything we do ought to be lived for the glory of God. So we're, we're at time now. So those are the five, uh, most of the time when we think of uh, the five points of the Reformation, we think of the five points of Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism were John Calvin's five points. Those are not the five points of the Reformation. Those five are the five. What's that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me give you a couple. These are the reason why I didn't read them. Let me give you a couple. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. So, sola deo, D-E-O, that's glory, uh, for the glory of God, gloria, gloria, G-L-O-R-I-A, like the restaurant in Fairview. Isn't there glorious? Yeah, I thought they were. Yeah. yeah. John Marcus. Yes. Three great resources. Anybody want more on this? The movie is Luther is outstanding. Yeah. It's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is actually a good one. It's, it's old black and white, and uh, that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, old black and white. It really, it really is worth a view. The the, the movie, and it's pretty much just him. You're kind of hearing what he's going through. A lot of, a lot of it's self talk in there, uh, but it's it's worth going and just looking at. And it's you'll ju- you'll just you'll just tap into it pretty good. Luther, Luther. It's just named Luther. He died of old age. He died of old age. Uh, he, he did. He did. He, he, there were, you know, actually what was, if you look through some of the history and the fun, uh, funny is, um, you know, he was captured one time. Uh, he was kidnapped, basically. There were times that he would travel. Through. There were certain areas that the princes would protect him and then certain areas where he'd be unprotected. So literally the Catholic mob squads would wait for him and see if they could ever find him. So it was... It was not. It was not uncommon uh, for um, for him to dress in uh, uh, dress like other people as he walked through places that he thought were unsafe spaces. Uh, he would never dress like Elvis. Uh, I, it was uh, Junker Junger Young. Junger Young. There was, there was somebody he, he would dress like him. Uh, actually, at at the end of the Reformation, it was it was Martin Luther. 
um, who really reinstituted uh, what was called contemporary church music, uh, that he actually put help wanted signs. Uh, he wanted to rewrite uh, church music because all the cantations that were, that were being done in those days. So he actually put help wanted signs. He wanted all poets to come and help him write church music. And that's what they did. And so he actually, if you want to talk about where, where did all this contemporary music start? Martin Luther and the Reformation. And uh, so he's the one that brought all these poets. Now it's interesting. People say, you know what? We need to go back and sing all the hymns and all this new stuff. Well, this, this was the Reformation. The second thing that Martin Luther tried to do after he reformed the church was reform church music. Yeah. Oh, no, all of them were. Yeah, all, all, but by the way, if you want to talk about the music of the church, be careful. Because all they took were the joy, because the church had this droning, monotone, I'm not going to go too far because uh, some of y'all want that. Um, the, that, was, that, was, that was a joke, not really. Um, what did he do? He said the church ought not to be a beating the people are beaten in the field. And he said, you hear them in the pubs, and they have joy. He said, the church should sound more like the pub than it does. Now, some of y'all are really thinking, now we got it going, Pastor. You're, you're headed down the right way. He said, the church should sound more like a pub than it does the morgue. And let me tell you what, Charles Wesley and the Wesley brothers... You, where did they take most of their tunes? Right out of the pubs. What, they were easy to sing, they were easy to sing, and people laughed and they enjoyed doing them. Now, in those days, in Martin Luther's days, what they were singing in the pub, it was the soccer songs. Uh, well, he, he took that, Mighty Fortress is Our God. You take all of those. The tw I think he ended up with 27 hymns they, uh, they, they produced. I want you to know when he produced them, they were contemporary songs that the previous generation of the church hated. They called them an anathema. They called them accursed. Don't sing those songs. They are accursed. They will send you to hell. Uh, we're not quite that harsh today. So that's why we always want to be, we want to have the new and we want to have the old in the church. The new and the old in the church. But Martin Luther, if you want to know where did all this stupid contemporary music start, Martin Luther. But yeah, he put up help wanted signs. He says, if you're a poet, come help us write church music. The people will enjoy singing. And he wanted about, you'll notice here, a mighty fortress is their God. That song, uh, it had a lot to do with he, he was held up most of his life uh, by a prince in a castle, and that was the only thing that protected him. And so he said, my God is like this fortress that, that if, if there was anybody that could get in and kill me, they would. And um, uh, he, uh, let's see some other things about uh, the reference. Any other, any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He translated, yeah, he, he, he had nothing to do, folks. So he's held up in captivity. He translated the higher, entire New Testament from the Greek into German. And uh, getting, getting God's Word into the people's hands. You know, why would you, train, why would you change the Greek from Greek to Latin, which no one read? He says, let's get it, let's, let's get it into the people's hands. And he said, I want, if, if it's sola scriptura, then everybody needs to read the Bible, right? And... Um, 
Other thoughts. Let's see what else. Uh, he preached. He preached right up until the last day of his death. If you didn't know, when he left the Augustinian monk, uh, he uh, he went to uh, Nun Harmony, and he uh, his wife was a former nun. Uh, when she heard his gospel message, she rolled out. Uh, he broke his vow. They had six kids. If y'all don't know what that means, y'all don't need to know. So uh, he thought that was a dumb vow. <laughs> uh, he, he did mention that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, good Lord, yes. Yeah. They all died. Yeah. If, if, if you want to, yeah, that's it. Hey, that, I'm glad you brought that up, and now I'm way over time, and I, sh- I should do a week on pre-reformers. Man, John Huss, about 100 years before Martin Luther, John Huss, and that word Huss in, in, in German means goose. All right, it, it's loosely translated goose, okay? Uh, John Huss was what we refer to as a pre-reformer. Maybe, maybe I'll come in here someday and do a little pre-reformers. There were many men who predated Martin Luther with the same messaging, the same ideas, and they met a different fate. They didn't have the luxury of having a prince protect them. They got burned at the stake. Many of these pre-reformers. Now, here, here's the beautiful. If you want to remember this, um, I, I think John Huss's statement was, kill the goose, wait for the swan. As goose and the swan. A hundred years before Martin Luther. And, he's, and he actually used the word a hundred years, John Huss. He says, kill the goose. That was him. And he goes, in a hundred years will come the swan. The swan was the gospel. And he says, you are hearing me challenge the church with the truth of the gospel. And as you kill me today, he said, burn the goose, but the swan's on its way. And so, you, boy, if you know John Huss, if you want to go look up John Huss, he's what we refer to as a pre-reformer, and there's so many other ones. And by the way, uh, Martin Luther didn't do this all alone. He, he had a guy named Melanchthon that was along in his side all the time. Martin Luther was a firebrand, hard breather. Uh, Martin Luther apparently was the kind of guy that even if you were on his team, you hated his guts. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But he had a companion that did a lot of his writing, a lot of his preaching, and a lot of his teaching. He was kind of like, you know, the, you had the prophet and you had the counselor that were right, right there next together. Uh, and so partner, he had a good partner. His wife was a great partner, and she loved him. Uh, he preached, uh, Martin Luther preached right up until about two days before he died, and he knew he was preaching his last sermons. Um, but yeah, pre-reformer John Huss, one of, the, one of the most incredible ones. But the goose and the swan. I bet you can Google Goose and the Swan of the Reformation and some did it come up? Okay. That's right. That's right. So glad you brought up John Huss, one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. He was reforming when reforming wasn't cool. Hey guys, y'all have a great day. Take care. God bless.